Amen. I do want to say as a uh, invitation and a, a reminder of the meal this evening, it's more than just gathering together to enjoy our freedom and food and water guns and things like that. It is, it is part of our fellowship, um, and that word gets thrown around a lot, but there is something so, so important with Christian fellowship. If we indeed are the body of Christ, then our unity is meant to adorn our confession. One of the most fundamental ways that the unbelieving world is to be convinced of the legitimacy of the gospel is the love and unity of God's people. So make it a priority to come, and not just because of the food, though it will be great. Would you pray with me before we turn to our text this morning? Heavenly Father, we desire to know you. And more than that, we desire to obey you. And more than that, we desire to love you. We desire to be filled with your love for others and for you. So please send your Holy Spirit. Pour him into our hearts. and By him, strengthen us to both know, obey, and love you. Help us see you today as our great shepherd. Help us see the Lord Jesus as the greater David, whom you sent to be the shepherd of your people. And help us understand your good gifts of shepherds to the church. And help us rejoice in all of these things. And if you would, where you are, if you would... In your mind and heart, pray for me that I would use words that are clear and understandable and helpful. And if you would, pray also for yourselves that the Lord would give you ears to hear, eyes to see Him. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you. It's in the name of your Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. If you would, open your Bibles to the first letter of Peter, chapter 5, as we continue our study in this marvelous letter. We would never be preaching through the Bible where I would say something like, as we continue our study through this less than exceptional letter, but First Peter has been marvelous. I hope you've enjoyed the series as much as I have, though I doubt it. First Peter chapter 5, we will be in the first five verses. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God, that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. 
For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Why is this text here? I think it's important for us in any setting, when we read the Bible or when we come to particular texts, to answer that question for a number of reasons, or else we'll miss the connection to the rest of the letter. I will give you three reasons why I think this text is here in the flow of Peter's purposes in writing this letter. He begins the section with the word so, or therefore, we might say. This means that it is connected to all of the imperatives that he has already given the church. We've just finished, last week, a long section of exhortation to the whole congregation. And there have been exhortations to particular people within the congregation, those who are slaves, those who are wives, those who are husbands, and all of you, right? So so there have been exhortations to everybody in the church, and then closing that section out, then, he begins a new subsection saying so, meaning that this teaching, the truth about biblical elders and biblical shepherding, is an obedience issue. Elders or shepherds is an obedience issue. Elders faithfully shepherding is an irreplaceable part of ensuring that the church is obedient to the chief shepherd. That's why it's here, one of the reasons. The second reason is shepherding is an issue of good order. We're going to see this in a bit when we come to the bulk of this message, but um, when a Jew or a person in the first century would have heard the word shepherd, a lot more images and ideas would have come to their minds than come to our minds. A group of sheep without a shepherd is a picture of disorder and chaos, and loss. And so when he is exhorting the elders to shepherd, it, he's signaling this is an issue of good order. Paul says the same thing when he writes to Titus. He says, this is why I left you in Crete, that you may put what remained into order and appoint elders in every place. God desires his church to be orderly and to be uh, honoring in that structure and order and Elders shepherding, in a biblical way, is a key component of that. One might even say a foundational component of that. Thirdly, the reason why this text is here is that it is an issue of commitment to the Lord. The whole text is framed in view of the last day, when the chief shepherd appears. There is a moment coming in time when the books will be opened, and every account will be balanced, and all of the sheep will be judged, the goats will be separated from the sheep, and the good shepherds will receive a reward, and the bad shepherds will receive punishment or loss of reward. And so being committed to Jesus is not just a personal thing. Having Biblical elders who shepherd biblically is an issue of being committed to the Lord. I want you to turn to Acts 14, verse 19. I want you to see this one. This one has become so important to me as I understand the biblical teaching of shepherding and why it's a thing and why elders are important and elders serving biblically, shepherding biblically is so key. The context of Acts chapter 14, beginning in verse 19, is that Paul has preached the gospel in Lystra, 
And he's stoned. We can see that in verse 19. So Jews come from Antioch and Iconium, having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch. So the very places where these Jews who hated Paul and wanted to kill him, he doubles back through his missionary journey, going the way he came, returning to Antioch. And he does something different. When they had preached the gospel in that city, made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch. So that's the whole tracing the trip back. Strengthening the souls of the disciples encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. It sounds like the last two chapters of 1 Peter that we just finished teaching through. And when they had appointed elders in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Commitment to the Lord unto the last day when the chief shepherd returns is why biblical elders and shepherds exist. I've been thinking a lot about the new heavens and the new earth recently for several reasons. And you know what? I want you to be there with me. And there is no such thing as a spiritual black light that I can hold over your soul to see whether or not you're safe. One of the most significant ways that the Lord has given to the church to make sure that we make it there and that we make it through the coming judgment and not be put to shame is giving this church pastors, elders, people who will shepherd faithfully. This is what Paul says in Ephesians. He says, after Jesus arose from the dead, he gives gifts to men, and part of the gifts that he gives in his exaltation and his victory over death is, and he gave pastors. He's not just, these aren't just extraneous benefits of redemption. These are key to his plan of redemption. He gives the apostles, the prophets, and the pastors to the church to ensure that we make it home. That's the issue. That's why this text is here. If suffering is coming, and it is, if trials and tribulations are coming, both to improve the quality of your faith and to test the quality of your faith, as we saw last week, then it makes perfect sense why the Lord would give elders who would faithfully shepherd. So the plan with this text is that we will spend the majority, if not all, of the month of July in this text. So four or five sermons will be right here. So why this level of emphasis? We haven't done this level of emphasis with any other text in 1 Peter. Well, the reasons I just mentioned, why this text is here, I think give some precedence to that. But also, we are as a church in a season of Constitution and Bylaws rewrite. If you're a visitor here, um, that's some of what's been going on in our church for the last two years or so. There are a lot of reasons why we're doing that, but this issue of biblical shepherding is one of the main reasons we are going through that season of rewrite. So why now? I would say, first, it is an urgent and important need. If the reasons for biblical shepherding are as serious as I just explained, then it 
is urgent and important. This is something I've been working on and towards as your pastor since before I got here. So for almost four years, this has been a project. There have been many, many false starts, setbacks, and hindrances. The Bible says, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. So I don't know if four years is hasty or not, but it definitely hasn't felt that way. I've honestly had some people who have told me that they haven't even visited here because we had just one pastor, one biblical elder. So for some people, they value it rightly and very highly, and that creates, I think, a good pressure on me to move as your pastor towards plurality of elders. However, even more damage can be done to the church through doing it the wrong way. And we'll see that as we go through this idea of shepherding. So hear me say this very clearly. This issue and moving towards biblically appointed plurality of elders is a repentance issue. There have been a lot of trials and difficulties that have come upon this very church because of a lack of biblically qualified shepherds. So, moving towards presenting potential elder pastor candidates is the context which this is coming from. And in God's providence, here we are at a text that addresses this very thing. So I think it makes sense to slow down and focus on these things as we lay the theological groundwork and my pastoral concern for these things. If you're a member of this church, you can read closely the the current drafts that you have of the Constitution and bylaws. The the process is very specific and very careful. Um, So that's the organizational side of what's going on. But we're working here from the pulpit not to define that, but to help us all understand why God did this in the first place. So here's my thesis for you for this message that will run through the rest of these messages on this passage. The verb of elders is shepherd. The verb of elder is shepherd. You could play a word association game with any noun and verb in your mind. Sun, shine. Right? Fish, swim. Human, worship. Right? There's noun, and then there's a verb that corresponds to it. So the noun elder, the verb that closest most closely expresses what an elder does is shepherd. That's my thesis. So we could just say amen, pray, and take up the offering. We don't take up the offering, but uh, we got the box there. But we could just we just conclude the service there. If you buy that, if you understand and agree with that thesis, then you get it. But here's my concern. With a text like this, in the 21st century, when we hear a word like shepherd we have far fewer things to go off of to understand what that means. And so the burden for me in this message is to help us understand a biblical portrait of shepherding, a biblical theology of shepherding. So the verb of elders is shepherd. This is not innovative, but it is overlooked. This is not groundbreaking, but it is very neglected. It is not complicated, but it is often very misunderstood. This is not an 
issue of first importance. Like if you, if you get the definition of elders and what, what the most appropriate verb for elders is wrong, if you get that wrong, you, you can still be a Christian, right? This is not a first order issue. But by getting it wrong, a lot of people will end up in hell. And by getting it right and biblically shepherds, biblically appointed elders, shepherding in a biblically sanctioned way, many more people will end up in heaven, in the new heavens and the new earth. It is that important. So, with that said, it is an all-important question. What is biblical shepherding? The word pastor is closely related to this. It's the Greek word, the Greek corresponding term of shepherd is pastor. It's a verb. To pastor, to shepherd, it's the same thing. This is different, I want you to understand, those of you who are theologically aware, this is different than the question of qualifications. We will get to this qualifications of elder next week as we do a more straight exposition of this pericope. This week, I want us to really get a rich feel for what the word shepherd is in a biblical sense, or else the burden of exegesis will be too heavy when we get to it next week. Different from the question of qualification. It's not as simple as, as a few to-do lists. Understand. The reason Peter does not exhaustively divine shepherding is because it is a rich biblical idea. It points to so many other things through our shared history in the Old Testament. So I want to trace trace the theme of shepherds through the story of redemption for you. And all along the way, I want us to understand, ultimately, for the people of God, God himself is our shepherd. So as we look at positive examples of shepherding, how the enemy opposes good shepherding, and negative examples of shepherding, rejoice, for God himself, the Lord, is your shepherd. The first shepherd we meet is, of course, Abel. You remember the story? Adam and Eve had two sons. Cain, the firstborn, was a man of the field. And Abel was a shepherd. Didn't end so well for him. His brother killed him. And there is a thematic conclusion that we can take from this. Abel, for the Jewish people, was seen as, in many ways, the first emblematic person who was justified by faith. You can see this in the author of Hebrews. Very important figure in this flow of God justifying people through faith. And what happens generally to those who trust in God is that the mechanism of the enemy and wicked men comes against them, even to kill them. This is the theme that plays out all throughout redemptive history, ultimately in the Lord Jesus, the greater Abel, and on through this day. That's the context of what we've just seen in the last two chapters of First Peter. So the thematic conclusion from the story of Abel is this, that the enemy hates shepherds. A good shepherd is caring and gentle. The enemy is self-serving and harsh. A good shepherd is lowly and gets dirty in the service of his sheep. The enemy is proud and will not lift a finger for anyone. A good shepherd feeds and waters. The enemy steals, kills, and destroys. A good shepherd takes out of his own time and life to see to the well-being of the sheep. The enemy only seeks his own ends. So we can see this play out. 
The enemy, opposed to shepherds of God's people, opposed to shepherds in general. So he undoes the efforts to establish good shepherds, and he works round the clock to appoint bad shepherds. It's part of his plan. We can fast forward from Abel to the patriarchs. Dr. Todd Miles uh, gave a talk on this very thing, shepherds and leadership in the church, and I'm drawing a lot from that, but he, he said this, it has to tell us something that all the patriarchs were shepherds. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Now, we have to realize, we have to say, uh, in fairness, that there weren't a lot of options in the ancient Near East as far as career path. Okay? Uh, builder, hunter, shepherd. You know, th- those are kind of the three big ones. Maybe ruler, if you were lucky. And if you were lived in a city, maybe that opened up a lot more. So there weren't a lot of choices. But it has to tell us something. There were not, there, there were not for the Jewish people anyone greater than Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they were all shepherds. Esau, who, who is emblematic of those who reject God, was a hunter. Nothing against hunters. Right? <laughs> My namesake, Joshua, wasn't a shepherd in the literal sense. Uh, more of a hunter of men in, in that, but that's a different sermon. But we see with the patriarchs that this theme of shepherding develops. And as, as Todd Miles points out, Genesis 48, verses 15 through 16, is the first metaphorical use of the word shepherd. I'll read it for you. And he blessed Joseph. This is when Jacob, Israel, is blessing Joseph and the sons of Joseph. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, with whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel that has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys, and in them let my name be carried on, in the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. So who is the first metaphorical shepherd It's God himself. He is the shepherd of the patriarchs. So we can fast forward from the patriarchs to Moses. And there's a theme on repeat in the life of Moses. So you remember the story with Jacob when he uh, moves the stone with Rachel there and and waters the sheep. That turned out pretty well for him. Same situation plays out for Moses where he uh, is in a situation, defends uh, some shepherdesses and waters the sheep. So and, and it turns out pretty well for him. So caring for the sheep seems to go pretty well for men of God. He spent 40 years as a literal shepherd shepherding in Midian, and 40 years shepherding the people of God. Poor Moses, dealing with really stubborn creatures and really rebellious humans for 80 years. Moses is called the friend of God. I wonder if some of that friendship is because he understands and gets it. And we see with Moses, when he hands the reins, as it were, over to Joshua, he prays to the Lord in this way. Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep without a shepherd. That's how Moses prays right before the appointment of Joshua to be the next Leader. So, being sheep without a shepherd then would have grave and serious consequences. 
we can fast forward to David and see that in, in many ways, the distinction between David and Saul, in one way, is that Saul, uh, Saul takes care of donkeys, herdsmen, David's a shepherd. I don't know what it says that Saul took care of donkeys, if that set him up for his failure, but maybe. Donkeys are weird. The issue for the people when they wanted a king was not simply that they wanted a king. They wanted the wrong kind of king. Give us a king who will go out before us and lead us in battle like the nations surrounding us. There was even Old Testament provision that the people could seek for a king, but they wanted the wrong kind of king. They wanted someone like Saul, strong, impressive. They didn't want a spiritual shepherd. And the people eventually realized this difference. 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 2. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you, speaking to David, who led out and brought Israel in. And the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd for my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. David, of course, is the author in all likelihood of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. Because of the similarities, it would not surprise me if David was reading that blessing of Jacob to the sons of Joseph when he penned Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. We'll spend a good chunk of time now in Ezekiel chapter 34, if you want to turn there. As we come to the idea of bad shepherds on the one hand and good shepherds on the other. So this theme of the metaphorical shepherd, David himself being the shepherd of God's people, who's simultaneously king, but not just a king, a shepherd king, continues throughout the history of Israel until it becomes a very developed theological theme where you have bad shepherds on the one hand and good shepherds on the other. Ezekiel chapter 34, starting in verse 1. As I said earlier, the enemy works around the clock to oppose good shepherds like David and to raise up bad shepherds like Saul. We could ask this question. Why did the people of Israel fall into gross idolatry? Why did they rebel against the law of God? There's two answers. Partly it's their fault, right? The soul that sins shall die. Everyone who sins is culpable for their own sins. But on the other hand, it is partly due to bad shepherding. This is why a king, a ruler, or a priest is held especially responsible. You'll run into this phrase all throughout the Old Testament. He led Israel to sin. Happens over and over. That's why it's so serious and why the enemy can have a lot of efficiency in his program of ensuring death and devastation and stealing if he can just appoint bad shepherds. Ezekiel 34, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. This is the central issue of shepherding. Who is getting fed? The issue is not, of course, literal food. It might include that, 
But far more important is this issue of, might we say generally, care. Who's getting cared for? The leaders of Israel were insulating themselves from the suffering of these lowly peasants in Israel. They were taking advantage of God's sheep to meet their own needs. I mean, this on its own, this, this single idea condemns the prosperity gospel out of hand. Then, Before we even talk about the correctness of the theology, and understand there are many who don't preach anything wrong, no heresy, 100% right, who are yet still committing the same sin, fleecing the sheep with the truth. And it angers the Lord. It is wickedness, and God will judge. Verse 4, The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness. You have ruled them. See, it's not just about food or possessions or money. Like I said, it's like it's it's this idea of care. Who's getting cared for? Who do you care about? Is it you and yours or is it God's sheep? That's the issue for the leaders of God's people. And fathers, obviously, we have unique responsibilities to our families. But to be a shepherd, a good shepherd, means that you do these things Strengthening the weak, healing the sick, binding up the injured, bringing back the strayed, seeking the loss, and ruling with kindness and gentleness. That is what the good shepherd does. That is what good shepherds should do. Not just for your family and not just for your favorite sheep. For all of God's sheep. Verse 5. So they were scattered, speaking of God's sheep. So what is the effect? What is the consequence of poor shepherding? Here's what it is. They were scattered. Because there was no shepherd. And they became food for all the wild beasts, torn to pieces and eaten. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all over the face of the earth with none to search and seek for them. The stakes are just as high now as they were then. This same thing happens when there are not good shepherds. As I said in the beginning, it's an issue of persevering to the end, to the final day when the chief shepherd will appear. There are so many reasons for this, why, why it is that shepherds neglect the sheep. But they're scattered. How does that work? How does that fit with eternal security? Because we believe in the perseverance of the saints, that... If you are, in fact, a child of God, you don't get unadopted. If you've been given to Jesus as one of the ones that the Father has given him, you don't lose that ever. Remember, this is the Old Testament, so it's using analogy, and the situation was different then. But think of it this way. There are goats on their way to becoming sheep who will nonetheless be torn to pieces by wild beasts because the shepherds aren't doing their job. And there are sheep who will still remain sheep until the last day who will yet be harassed and injured and close to being torn to pieces because of poor shepherding care. That's the issue. 
It's amazing that when Jesus reinstates Peter, he picks up on these same ideas. Feed my sheep, tend my sheep, feed my lambs. It's a central issue. There is then almost no one who has more potential for good and evil at the same time than someone in the role of pastor-shepherd. Because it has to do with the last day and perseverance. Verse 10, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed them. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths. They will not be food for them. This is how God responds to the bad shepherds. And this is in part why Paul David Tripp calls the ministry of shepherding a dangerous calling. Because if you do it wrong, God will be your enemy. Improper shepherding care causes God to come against you in power and fury. Consider what happened to Saul. When he did not shepherd the people of God properly, God not only tore the kingdom from him, he even sent a demon to torment him. So, what is God going to do to fix this situation? Aside from just punishing the bad shepherds, now we get to the good shepherd. Verse 11. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered. So I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of cloud and thick darkness. Skip down to verse 15. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and I will make them lie down, declares the Lord. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed and I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak. And the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. There are moments in sports and in movies where you have a I'll do it myself moment where one central character decides, all right, no one else that I've sent to do this job can do it, so I'll do it myself. This may be the most significant and powerful I'll do it myself moment in the Bible, in all of human history. Yahweh himself will somehow come and be in the midst of his scattered people and gather them together from the farthest reaches of creation and feed them in justice. He will seek, he will bring back, he will heal, he will strengthen, and he will judge. You can see that in verses 17 through 21. And he will feed them. Skip down to verse 22. I will rescue my flock, and they shall no longer be a prey, and I will judge between sheep and sheep. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. And he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. 
You see how the whole Bible, then, the whole story of redemption, can be seen through this lens of shepherding. And how God has designed, and He has ordained, and He has planned to appoint one good shepherd over His people. The way that Yahweh Himself will both judge between sheep and sheep and bring recompense against the false shepherds is by appointing David as their shepherd. So is it David or is it Yahweh? And of course we know it's, it's neither one by themselves. It's a figure, a person, a being who is both simultaneously David's greater son and Yahweh Himself, Jesus Christ will be the shepherd of God's people. He is our shepherd. And look at the result. Look at the result of this wonderful and amazing administration of this greater David as the shepherd of God's people. Skip down to verse 30. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God with them. And that they, the house of Israel, my, are my people, declares the Lord, and you are my sheep, human sheep of my pasture, and I am your God, declares the Lord God. So when we finally get to Jesus, not surprisingly, but so movingly and astonishingly, he takes up all of these themes, this, this thousands of year old theme of shepherding God's people and applies it to himself without question and with utter clarity. John 10, verses 1 through 10, if you want to turn there. John 10, verses 10 through 18. The thief comes only to steal, to kill, and to destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees a wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. Twice he repeats it. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me. This is one of the most astounding statements regarding the work of the Messiah, the second person of the Trinity. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. And I have authority. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Do you understand the significance of statements like this? When Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, he's not just appealing to some metaphor that exists in the first century. He is saying that good shepherd that Ezekiel prophesied some 500 years ago, where Yahweh himself would be the shepherd, and it would be David at the same time. I'm that guy. I am both Yahweh and David's greater son, and your shepherd. This is why immediately after Jesus says this, the people say he's crazy. He's crazy. He has a demon. 
No one can say things like this unless they're crazy. But of course, it was shown to be all true by the fact that he did indeed take up his life of his own accord. All of this points to Jesus, who is himself the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. So, we've seen the bad shepherds, good shepherds, Jesus, and then there are shepherds that Jesus gives. It is not as if we just have Jesus as our shepherd. The great shepherd of the sheep, because he cares for the sheep, gives the gifts of other shepherds, under shepherds, to his church. And that is why we have this text. First Peter 5, 1-5. So Peter says, Shepherd the flock of God. All of this thematic theology, if you will, all of these allusions, all of this imagery that is just throughout the Old Testament is now taken by Peter and says, and he says, elders among you, you be like that. That's the point. So unless we understand that background of shepherding and what it even means when someone says that verb, in a biblical sense, we'll miss the whole point. Because otherwise, we'll just define what shepherding is by our own life experience. Or you'll make it up. Whatever you want a pastor or shepherd to be. Is why we've spent so much time defining what biblical shepherding is through the lens of redemptive history. If we don't do that, then pastor or elder and the work of shepherding will not be defined, and the people of God will be scattered. And the problem is this. Humans are sinful. And if we do not work to have strict conformity to the example of Jesus and work vigilantly against the bad types of shepherds that the enemy works to appoint, then we will find ourselves pastors just like them. And this is going to happen. This is prophesied. In the last days, people will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own fancies, having itching ears. Many people may want pastors or plurality or elders, and we may love as individuals various different preachers that we really like, but our our desire, if we are not careful, can be just like the people of Israel when they wanted Saul to be their king. You can want the wrong kind of pastor. You can want to be the wrong kind of pastor. It can be more like the Corinthian congregation who were willing to put up with the super apostles who made demands on them and took money from them instead of Paul who did not make demands on them other than the law of Christ and did not take money from them. But the Corinthian congregation preferred, in their sin, they preferred the abusive shepherding care of the super-apostles. Imagine what kind of stupidity it would have taken to wallow in to begin to despise the ministry of the Apostle Paul as your pastor and prefer the ministry of the self-promoting and self-serving super-apostles. Surely, if we were members of the church in Corinth... We would have been in the right frame of mind and preferred Paul's ministry, right? Right? 
Be careful how you answer. This is what Paul says to them. You have countless guides in Christ, but not many fathers. The same issue is at play for these 2,000 years. So, a few applications for shepherds and those who aspire. Applications for shepherds and those who aspire. Be like Jesus, right? We could just end the exhortation there. Be like Jesus in your shepherding. One's ministry as a pastor, elder, minister, preacher must emulate the great shepherd. It is not leadership in the church that we need in a, in a basic sense. And it is certainly not management or being an entrepreneurial person. It is shepherding like Jesus, like the Lord Himself. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep of his own accord. That is the heart of every true shepherd. Everyone who will receive a, con- a commendation from the Lord, the chief shepherd on the last day. Secondly, ask for and cultivate the heart of the chief shepherd. To do the verb of shepherding can only come from a genuine heart of shepherding. From our text, this is what Peter says, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering, but being examples from for the flock. Todd Miles says that a shepherd protects, provides, guides, and cares. But here's the thing. You can have the to-do list of shepherding memorized, and you can still yet lack a heart of a shepherd. Behind all that, behind the, the, the understanding of what the responsibility is, is the heart of a shepherd. There ha- it has to be there. A love for the sheep. Aspiring to be a shepherd then is very different than a desire just to preach. This, this is something that happened for me. I, I wanted to preach and start preaching, started preaching when I was 16 years old. Didn't know anything about the heart of a shepherd. And it was not until far into ministry, before I came here, but far into ministry, youth ministry, growth groups, stuff like that, where I started to see the outline, the real outline of the heart of a shepherd. And I saw it and received it from good shepherds. It's different. Thirdly, application for shepherds and those who aspire, examine yourself. If you aspire towards shepherding and leadership, and, and understand part of the reason we're, we're focusing on this is to summon it out of you. The people of God need more shepherds. But you need to ask the question seriously. Do you have a shepherd's heart? Or do you just want to teach or preach or lead or influence or decide or manage? It's different. Leadership in the church without a shepherd's heart will result in death and damnation. It is that serious. You can see devastation like this play out in many different churches all the time. To paraphrase, paraphrase the Apostle Paul, if I can preach better than Spurgeon or Martin Lloyd-Jones, but have not the heart of a shepherd, I am nothing. 
If I can read all the best books and translate Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic better than Edwards, but have not the heart of a shepherd, I gain nothing. If I can organize and manage all manner of resources and money better than the reformers and the apostles themselves, but have not the heart of a shepherd, I'm just a noisy gong. If I can evangelize and work for justice in the world and do good even better than the leaders of the Great Awakening, but have not the heart of a shepherd, I am just a clanging symbol. But on the other hand, if you have a shepherd's heart, goodness gracious, do you know what kind of shortage there is in the world? It is not that there are just a ton of empty pulpits out there waiting for you to come and apply, but there is an inevitable reality if you're paying attention that the people of God are scattered. They are scattered into all sorts of dark spiritual places across the mountaintops. The people are, again, in many ways, like sheep without a shepherd, and this is why we need to pray for the great shepherd to return. But in the meantime, if you have the heart of a shepherd, my goodness, it is a miracle. If you have it, or even if you just understand what it is and you see it and you want to have it, seriously, come talk to me. We don't have time to mess around when the sheep of God's pastor are being torn. And when goats who would otherwise be becoming sheep are being torn to pieces. If, it ha- if you have a shepherd's heart, it does not matter to me if you're not very good in front of people. And it almost doesn't matter to me how many other limitations you may have as a person. The people of God need shepherds. And if you have this heart, then Jesus has given it to you for the care and eternal security of his sheep, even if you never have the title. Why not fan it into flames so you can be more useful for his purposes? to close with some applications for all Christians. So those were exhortations to shepherds and those who aspire. Obviously, I'm the target for most of those. Applications for all Christians. Two unholy inclinations. You need to be aware of these. There are two unholy inclinations that every church in every age of the church and every Christian has to fight against. The first unholy inclination is in shepherds to be bad shepherds, to be like the super apostles, to be like the evil leaders of Israel, to be like Saul, which is all to say to be like the enemy. There are temptations that are at work in the heart of every minister where the enemy would want to make even good shepherds who are doing a good job now become more like Saul than David. The second unholy inclination is this, that the people of God are often seduced into wanting that bad kind of shepherding. The sinfulness of man's heart, even in the believer, is to gravitate towards leaders who are not like Jesus, who are not like David, and not like Paul, even though Jesus, David, and Paul are more gentle and kind It is as if we have a Stockholm Syndrome because of our servitude to the enemy in our past and the bondage 
to the law that we gravitate towards leaders that are just like them. Be aware of that tendency, that unholy inclination. As Paul says to the Ephesian elders, be alert. Know that these two unholy inclinations are real dangers today in every church and in every pastor and in every congregation. Second application for all Christians or all people. The Lord gives you under shepherds. And that under shepherd sheep relationship is vital. We will see this in the coming weeks as we do straight exposition of the text with this idea of shepherding in mind. Thirdly, behold your God. He is your shepherd. What is a shepherd to be like? What do we envision God to be like? How are his might and power conveyed to you? What does that have to do with shepherding? Here's the point of this exhortation. What you think about God, what you believe he is like, determines what kind of shepherd you want. And for those who aspire to ministry, your vision of God's heart and his posture and his character, his kindness, humility, will determine what kind of leader in the church you want to be. Lastly, the Lord is your shepherd. So you shall not want. Or to say it another way, you shall know no want. You shall not lack anything that you truly need. Jesus in 1 Peter 5 is called the chief shepherd. Another way to translate that would be the senior pastor. He is the only senior pastor. And he's yours. If you are in Christ, he is your senior pastor. And this senior pastor, the Lord Jesus, will bring all of his promises to completion. Even good shepherds will disappoint you. For we're only sheep trying to stand on our hind legs and hold a shepherd's staff and do something like the Lord Jesus. So rejoice. The sheep don't have to find their own way to the good food. They don't have to find their way to the clean water or to the safe pasture or to the safe sheepfold. The good shepherd leads you to all these things. This is the treasured inheritance of belonging to the Lord Jesus in this life. He leads us as our shepherd. The faithful shepherd brings them in. He leads them out. He brings them to still waters. He feeds them in justice. So, if you are not his sheep, come to him. This faithful shepherd welcomes and receives all who come to him. And anyone who comes to him, he will most assuredly never cast out. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for sending Jesus to be our good shepherd, the greater David, who leads us 
and feeds us, even of his own body and blood, that we may live, conform our hearts to yield to the leadership of the Good Shepherd. Help us understand what his example shows to us who lead in the church. And please, raise up men who will lead like Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.